Today on Never Was a Gamer, it smells like wet fur in here. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is our own giant head of Olmec, Dimitri. Olmec? What about the hunk? The... Okay. Or at least the dog. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I'll be be Olmec. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for listening. We're here today to wrap up our arc on games from the indie boom by talking about Splunky. Yeah. This is, I'm excited to be playing this one. This is a, a game that I know as all my favorites' favorite game. Yeah, this is a game that a lot of designers yeah. really like yeah. and often references a game that uh, inspires them or that they really just enjoy playing. I was really excited to do this one too because I never played Spelunky. Hmm. This is the the only one of these three indie games that I kind of passed by for reasons uh, that I will get into once you set up what Spelunky actually is. because. I resisted it because of what it is on the surface. Because of prejudice. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Okay. Spelunky is a 2D platformer roguelike where you are an explorer that's diving deep into these caves um, that have multiple levels, and you're trying to get as far as you can towards uh, the the innermost bit of the cave. Along the way, there's enemies, there's shopkeepers there's different objects you can carry with you you know and the key thing is you only have like four hit points so the margin for error is very slim and sort of the fun of the game or the core loop is eat on each run how far are you getting through this through this uh procedurally generated cave level yeah and this game was incredibly influential it maybe not single-handedly i think dwarf fortress also had a hand in this but really helped popularize roguelikes or you know games with kind of roguelike elements which is one of the reasons that i steered clear of this game i love platformers Mm -hmm. um up until very recently did not want to touch a roguelike was Uh, hades kind of your breakthrough one I've dabbled before. That was one of the first ones I think that really hooked me. But before we get any further, do you want to do you want to explain what a roguelike is to you? Because like so many of these terms, you know, going yeah. back to our first episode with Metroidvania, it's a term that means many different things to different people, <laughs> and you know, it changes over time and and is used in different contexts, not always consistently. Roguelike, uh, so. roguelite, quasi rogue-ish. Yeah, right. And and like Metroidvania, it's a. It's a descriptor that is tied to a specific game, in this case, Rogue, right. which neither of us have played. Yeah, I don't know anything about it. I have, better. I have zero interest in playing Rogue. <laughs> um, and and I, honestly, it's because I think part of it is my prejudice against you know games like Rogue okay. that made me avoid <laughs> roguelikes, even though, as we'll see, the elements that people pick from Rogue vary. So yeah. anyway, what is a roguelike to you? Okay, well, so I don't know anything about rogue, so I'm talking very much about what my understanding is. The elements that make something a roguelike to me are when um, the basic game loop is structured around runs. They're about getting as far as you can under usually shifting variable circumstances. Um, and the understanding is that 
uh, you know, you have this sort of permadeath function where when you die, you're starting back from the beginning. So uh, the way of playing the game is not like, you know, going through Mario and if you die on World 3, you just restart World 3. It's like, no, in a roguelike, you are back at the start. So much longer loops um, with, you know, not pretty minimal, if any, persistent uh, progress. So, you know, whatever you've accumulated on one run, it dies with your character on that run. Yeah. And another part from Rogue that has been picked up a lot is procedurally generated levels. Oh, right. Like, as Michelle said, you're you're starting over from scratch after every death. And the world you're entering into is slightly unfamiliar because it's randomly generated. Right. According to, you know, certain rules that the, that the designers set Yeah, up. using laws you've established, but not the exact same world you stepped into previously. Right. And I think those are the most common elements from Rogue proper that are usually carried forth and applied to things now we call roguelikes. Like, if you actually look at Rogue, it was a turn-based game. It was a dungeon crawler, kind of, you know, fantasy trappings, even though, I mean, if you go back and look at it, it's made with, like, ASCII characters that doesn't look like <laughs> anything uh, to today's eyes. But yeah, like grid-based movement, turn-based gameplay. Some of those things, you know, those those don't always apply. Right. Um, and, you know, technically, you know, roguelikes should apply to that kind of dungeon crawler. But now it's just applied to a variety of genres. Yeah. And most of what I have played that's in this genre is hybridized with other game genres. Um, so, I mean, in my history with roguelikes, which is a... a Genre that I've come to really enjoy over the last couple of years. The the key touch points for me, I think Into the Breach was my first one that I really fell into. That's 2018. And ever since then, I've played uh, FTL, which is by the same team, uh, Slay the Spire, Dicey Dungeons, Hades, uh, probably some others I've, I've forgotten. Um, so, you know, we've got strategy roguelikes in the mix. We've got a deck builder roguelike. Uh, we've got an isometric action game in Hades. Uh, I haven't actually played a, a platformer roguelike before, so that was that was new for me with Spelunky. Um, and this uh, obviously, you know, I just named like five games or something. This isn't a huge breadth, but I've probably logged over a hundred hours in every one of those games. And in fact, Hades is probably the least, and I still, you know, got the the proper ending. You know, like I really finished that game. So yeah, these games are dangerous if they get their hooks in you. Oh boy, the temptation to just you know, try again is is very high. That's it. It's that one more time thing. It's like, okay, I lost, but one more time. Let me try again. So so what is it about this style of game that really appeals to you then? Well, so this is funny because it it the, you know, it kind of reminds me of some parts of our of our pre-Dark Souls conversation before I played that game where what I actually really like about these is the process of figuring out your weaknesses over the course of a particular run and then immediately starting up another one where you can apply that knowledge, but you also aren't going to be presented with the exact same scenario twice. Mm -hmm. And so there's still a surprise and it sort of prioritizes adaptability in the player. Like it's a, you have to acquire a really deep understanding of how to work with the game's mechanics. Cause it's not like you can just figure out, oh, I can do this one trick to get over that one gap in a Mario game, right? You're never going to see that gap again. You'll see other ones that need their own tricks. So I don't know. It's that it's that feeling of of accumulation of coming out of every run failing, but smarter about the game than you were before, um, and just getting that gradual, getting further and further. You know, beating that next hurdle. Um, I I really appreciate that challenge, uh, and that's something that you know we've talked about my my issues with difficulty and and failure and all that stuff. For some reason, in this genre, 
I'm like, yeah, I understand. It's going to be a difficult game. I'm going to die. I'm going to mostly lose. But at some point, I'll win. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is, for me, it was kind of the flip side of that. I think where my prejudices come from. And again, a lot of this had to do with ignorance of what has been done with the genre. Mm. But coming in, because yeah, I don't mind challenging games, but the the idea that there was going to be no progression and that you're generally just repeating the same thing over and over again just made me think that these games would be frustrating and boring. Sure. That was what I was expecting, why I never really played them. And and the other thing is that I tend to not like procedurally generated content. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I think, again, like just my mindset is, especially when I see something like Spelunky that is promoted as, you know, a roguelike platformer, in my mind, I think, why would I want to play a platformer that is just going to be procedurally generated. So probably have really sloppy level design when I could actually right. play something that has good level design right. and work my way through it. And again, why would I want to just, you know, get all the way through this game, bang my head against it only to lose and then have to start all the way back from the beginning again to go through exactly what I just went through. And again, both of those things aren't, aren't actually aren't accurate. Right. Right. And I, I think it did take something like Hades for me that just gave that little, you know, the hint of progression, in this case, you know, narrative progression, and and also in other ways, you you kind of do, you know, level up as you go. Hades, I would say, uh, among the sort of games I think you and I are familiar with, is definitely on the end of leaning towards more persistent progression than most. You're, mm -hmm. you're leveling up your character. And on top of opening up new weapons, you're opening up new strengths, you're making choices about how to improve your character, and you're getting big narrative advances. Mm -hmm. Like that one actually part of the magic is that it has it's figured out how to bake in a lot of persistent benefits between runs yeah and that was enough to get me into it and then i was able to see what the appeal of this genre is right and i was able to understand it better and and, and then actually was more willing to go try some other things yep uh yeah to the point right where i mean we, in our bastion talk i talked about how i kind of wish bastion was a robot yeah <laughs> Um, and yeah, Spelunky definitely got its hooks into me. I think I like this game more than you did. You have played, I played so much Spelunky. <laughs> it's just so tempting when you die just to do one, one more, more time. One more time. I yeah. know. One more try. Yeah. And I, I had a blast with it. And I'm so I'm really glad that we, you know, kind of we suggested doing this game because it was influential and kind of forced myself to play it because, uh, yeah, I got a lot out of it. Yeah. And I mean, the the rogue like is really doing the like is doing a lot of work here, right? Like. Essentially, none of the games that we have talked about so far actually don't have any kind of persistent progress. Like all of them have some form of opening up new things, even if that's not, you know, powering up your your uh, your character in between runs. So they go in inherently stronger, like you might be opening up uh, new tools to play with or a new character to run in with, which makes a lot of the mechanics of levels and everything play really differently, give you different opportunities. Right. And a lot of games that you played, like you mentioned Into the Breach, you mentioned Dicey Dungeons. In that case, the characters actually are substantially different. So that's, different. That's not like you can get, for example, extra characters in Spelunky, but that's just a skin of, of yeah, the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, and one of the things that I actually really also like about this genre is that Particularly with games like Into the Breach, like FTL, like honestly Dicey Dungeons, uh, you know what? All of these, except for Hades. <laughs> um, opening up new stuff isn't always stronger or easier. Like they're not clearly upgraded. I mean, Hades is the same thing with the weapons. That's true, say, actually. Right? 
Um, and yeah, you're going to have your certain weapon preference, but yep. you're still incentivized to go through the whole game with every weapon, with all the permutations of the weapons. Right. And and everyone's going to find some weapons or some characters easier than others, even if, you know, it's it's within the same system. So I I just love that stuff. I love how the difficulty scales in in these games, but still really gives you an own sense of mastery. It's not my character got better. It's like, I understand this game so much better now. And I mean, the way you're describing it, I think, you know, just hearing hearing how you describe it, it, it makes sense when you take those elements and apply them to, um, you know, action games or role-playing games or strategy games. It makes a little less sense when you think about how that might apply in the context of a platformer. You think? Yeah, I think that like the marriage of platformer and roguelike is not so apparent. And I, and I mean, that goes back to the history of the games when Derek Yu, the creator of Spelunky, was trying to figure out what his next game would be. So he had launched a game called Aquaria that had been, it was kind of one of the earlier indie games that I was aware of. It's a, kind of this beautiful Metroidvania style game. Cool. Uh, then he went off and wanted to do something different. Uh, he was experimenting with Game Maker at the time, which I think is another reason, you know, so Splunky was originally made in Game Maker. That is so crazy to me. You know, an- another reason why I think this is such an influential game, because it proved that game development was becoming accessible enough that right. somebody without, I mean, Derek Yu does have a, a programming background, but he sees himself, I think, primarily as an artist. And, you know, he's he even says himself he's not the strongest programmer, but was still able to make something you know, that was a great game and that's commercially viable and that, that, you know, people really enjoyed. And with this really original clarity of vision around it. Yeah. And that still seems like a complete game. And and since, you know, there's been an, a, a number of other games uh, that have had similar success to be made in Game Maker, like Gunpoint or, or Undertale is probably the more oh, right. recent one that really blew up. Um, but when Derek, you was trying to decide, you know, what would the next project be? He first tried to do uh, a traditional roguelike because he likes certain elements of roguelikes, even though... And had I known this, maybe would have let me uh, led me to Splunk even earlier. He says he doesn't actually like playing them. He just likes some of their ideas they have. <laughs> he tried to create one and, and said, you know, I, I I wasn't doing enough to change the genre. It, it, this doesn't sure. feel like, you know, a worthwhile project to continue on. So then he started to make... Also, it's so ambitious that you're just like one guy dicking around in Game Maker and you're like, hmm, I'm not moving the genre forward yeah. with this game. I can do yeah, he had, better. He definitely had, like, yeah, aspirations. That's awesome. And then he went to do that with a platformer and he's like, you know, I'm not really moving this genre forward. <laughs> and then you had the idea to to merge them together. And so you get something, because there is this context of indie platformers, Super Meat Boy being probably the most famous right. one that also comes out around this time, you know, and kind of explodes. But the idea of a platformer, again, with randomly generated levels where you're starting from the beginning every time, it's it, it was an incredibly unique concept. And I, I think one that isn't immediately, uh, it doesn't seem immediately obvious. Sure. Like why that would be, why the, A, why that would be fun and B, how that would be feasible without becoming just a mess of a game. Right. I do feel like there's a really delicate balancing act around difficulty, particularly in roguelikes. I mean, I know that there is in every game, but because I think the fundamental joy of them is in how hard it feels at for and that, that sort of ability of the player to mm-hmm. overcome things, I think this is something I appreciate about the design of, of a lot of these games is that... They just have to, the, the difficulty has to be tuned within like an inch of its life. I mm-hmm. just feel like one, 1% too easy and someone is through this thing in an hour um, and you start losing people afterwards. So, mm-hmm. I mean, especially as a solo person without, you know, testers and like huge mm-hmm. teams helping, um, that is that is a very, a very fine tuned 
thing. Yeah. And I mean, when you take these ideas again to a platformer and you think, okay, if, if you're making a difficult platformer, like imagine Super Meat Boy, but every time you missed a jump, you had to go all the way back to the first level. Well, you would design everything about Super Meat Boy differently in that well, case. This like, is you'd what have to. I, well, obviously, but this is what I was thinking to myself, why I didn't want to play this game. Sure, sure, sure. Because sure. A, okay, imagine if, you know, the, the pleasure of doing a platformer, and I like challenging platformers, but it's about, you know, learning the level and getting through it. Yeah. And, and you know, sometimes that takes practice, it takes experimentation. So the thought of, okay, if I'm experimenting on this level that's difficult and I miss one jump, I don't just get a retry. I have to go all the way back to the very first right. level. And then B... I actually don't get to do any of that jumping again because it's randomly generated. Right. So I can't even I can't even master the thing I'm trying to do. Like for me, it just seems so. Uh, it, like the, the the pleasure didn't seem to be there. But I mean, the, this game got around it in, in ways that we'll get into. But for for Derek, you the parts of the roguelike that he found appealing that he brought forward are kind of the ones you mentioned before. So the randomly generated levels part, the permadeath part, and then importantly, and I think this is kind of what gives this game its specific flavor. He wanted players, NPCs, and items to all share the same basic rules and behaviors. So right. all have the same physics. Um, as the player, you can interact with any item kind of equally. You can pick up items, you can pick up enemies, you can pick up NPCs, and you know you can chuck them all down a pit if you want to. You know you can you can interact with them all the same way, and they interact with themselves, right? And and with each other in, in a way that allows for some really uh, kind of twisted emergent gameplay. This is the source of so much joy in this game. Mm -hmm. I actually, one of my biggest single impressions from this game that I will take away is I cannot believe how funny this game is. Um, like I, the pure, like cackling joy I felt the first time I figured out that, you know, I'd, I'd picked up a rock at one point and then tried to chuck it at a bad guy, but it bounced off a wall, went up and fell on me and hit me in the head and that killed me. <laughs> and then the screen mm -hmm. that I died on said that I had brain damage specifically, like, that is a delight. Like some of the crazy shit that happens because of, you know, I was trying to throw a bomb over here, but it got caught in a spider web. And I didn't even know it could do that. And then I slipped by and then this guy threw me and I ricocheted off that thing and I landed on a bunch of spikes and I died. Like a lot of these stories end with and then I died. Mm -hmm. um, but it just like there is such a such a dedication to letting the systems interact with each other, whatever that is going to produce for good or bad or anything else. Um, and I just, I like that and respect it as a design approach so much. Yeah, I agree. And I think the humor for me is what helped me really get into this game. And the aesthetic of this game is is something that encourages me to move forward. So we played the we played the more famous 2012 Xbox Live Arcade release of the game. So as, as, as I mentioned, Derek, you made this game initially in Game Maker in 2008. And so it was kind of that Game Maker style pixel art. And, you know, he just he just released it as as freeware mm -hmm. because he was part of these indie game developer communities and kind of, just kind of put put it up. And, you know, people were, were really loving the game, sending feedback. Uh, and he was just, you know, tweaking it. But at that point, you know, not really making any money of it. He just, he just put it out there for people to enjoy. And then one day he gets this email uh, about a graphics glitch signed by this guy, Jonathan Blow. You heard of him? <laughs> and and as part of it, Jonathan Blow says, hey, I really like this game. If you want, I can put you in touch with my contacts at Microsoft. I think this game is better than, you know, 99% of the stuff that they they publish on Xbox Live Arcade. So Derek Yu says, uh, yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> and so he takes this pitch to Microsoft. He says, you know, within a year I can have a more fully featured version of the game, add things like multiplayer. Uh, let's go. And so he signs the contract. In in between that time, he, com he completely overhauls the engine, completely overhauls the art style. So this actually takes 
way more than the year that he thought. Sure. You know, they, they kind of rebuild the engine from scratch. But in doing so, they're able to have, you know, it's not that uh, it's not that pixel art anymore. It's this kind of really cartoony yep. HD like art style. Yeah. Which I think serves this game immensely. I don't think I could play this game in the pixel art version. And it, part of it is because of the humor. It just has this cartoony slapstick yes. vibe to it yes. that makes your every death so much more manageable. Like for me, I could just like instead of being it's a frust- Looney Tunes death. Yeah, instead of being frustrated when I when I died from something ridiculous, I more than often laughed. Yeah, which is very distant. I swore a lot, yeah. but but much <laughs> less than I expected, and much less than in, in other games. Can I tell you what I love about that anecdote that you just shared? Is that Jonathan Blow at this stage clearly was like, hmm. This programmer is pretty cool. I gotta come up with a pretense to email him because I can't just email him and be like, hey, dude, I like your game. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's such a coy way to approach someone whose work you respect. I find that very endearing. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, yeah, nice to nice to like give a give a leg up to someone whose work you respect. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's really great. And yeah, Derek, you went off and then, you know, hired this person he met in his indie game community years before who he had built up a friendship with to be the lead programmer on this like it was just like it's such a nice story of how this whole thing came together yeah and and that it turned out so well So going into this, did you have any expectations at all of what this game was? I, like, obviously, you were surprised by how funny it was. Yep. Um, I really didn't. I mean, I knew it's called Spelunky. So I sort of had figured that we're going into a cave. Uh, I knew it was a platformer um, that was procedurally generated. Other than that, I really knew nothing. I don't even think I had really a clear mental picture of what the art looked like, which is unusual for games of this era. I... I Certainly wasn't expecting um, quite the the variety of situations that that can come up. I wasn't really expecting the depth of secrets that this game has. Like it, there's there's a lot here that I I wouldn't have predicted. Yeah, I mean, for me, the secrets was part of the major hook and not something I expected. Again, had I listened to anything that Derek you said when he was making Flunky or after, I would have realized that maybe I should try this game out. He's talked a lot about how he was really frustrated with the state of games at the time. We've talked about this before, you know, at kind of late 2000s, getting into the mid, you know, 10s and teens, that, you know, the games were increasingly handholdy. Right. You know, especially growing up with 8 and 16-bit games that sometimes were relentless, relentlessly difficult, were finding it really frustrating how much games were, you know, holding your hand and not letting the players explore them on their own and, and uncover things as they go. It kind of, if there's a secret in the level, it kind of tells you that it's there. Sure. In which case, it's not a secret. Uh, but yeah, Derek, you really wanted to go back to the feeling that he felt, he says, when he was playing the original Legend of Zelda, a world that seemed to exist not for him to move through it, but that just seemed to exist for him to that he could then explore. So he talks about building a, a world that's indifferent to the player. That's really important to him. And part of that is just a world that is is shifting and that is, you know, that where things are hidden from basic mechanic systems yeah. <laughs> to... Um, you know, to different kinds of items and how they interact to certain NPCs or characters. You know that everything has different layers of secrets and that it's constantly changing and that the player's constantly uncovering something new, constantly being surprised, but also that most players probably won't see everything and that's okay. Right. 
right? Which again is extra impressive for like a relatively small indie production, right? Like they don't have a million people who can like work on things and not worry if if it's basically two people working on this right. game a third if you count you know the the person doing the music right and i mean there are whole zones that are secrets in this like it's not it's not just like oh this one character they might not meet or whatever it's like there's there's multiple whole areas with multiple levels within them that you could very easily not access on a run through yeah to give you an example you know you start going through these levels and you see this weird i don't know gross- i love this gross it's like an it, organ with like pins sticking out of it yeah you don't really know what it is at first just this thing kind of protruding from the background and if you jump into it you kind of stick in it yeah it's like okay that that's weird and so one level i'm going through and i have um an npc so the the damsel hunker pug which is an npc that you can find along the way and if you bring them to the exit uh you'll get a you'll get an extra heart yeah in this case you know i have i have i think in this case it was the hunk and I was bringing him towards the exit, and I had to make this jump. So, and and this uh, this protrusion was in the way, and but it, I I realized that, you know I can actually make this much longer jump if I jump, get stuck in him, and then use him to, to right. jump to the next platform. So I throw the hunk into it first, and he gets stuck. <laughs> and then, as I go to jump, this thing just opens up and eats the hunk. <laughs> I didn't know what happened. We have. But this time, like you and I have both jumped into these this object like 50 times yeah. on different runs. Like we've seen a million of these things. And so I don't know I don't know what is going on. My hunk is gone. <laughs> yeah. So I can't get my heart. My hunk. So I do it. So I try to replicate it again. And this time when I throw it, I now jump in with the hunk. And then I get eaten. And then I'm next thing I know, I'm in this level called the worm. You're inside the worm. And Again, th- how rare that is for me to be genuinely surprised by right. something in a game. I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is, and you know, I, fe- I felt like I had uncovered something. I had figured it out. It wasn't the game. You know, I didn't stumble upon an NPC saying like, I heard that if you, yeah. if somebody gets stuck <laughs> in the, in these protrusions, you better watch out. Like no hints at all. It just happened. And that's so satisfying. Uh, and I know there's so much more in this game that I'll never see because I'm not good enough at it. Yeah. And and I did kind of look at, for the purposes of this episode, you know, look into wh- what the other secrets are, many of which I would never have figured out. Oh, no, um, I would never have seen hell. But there's so yeah, there's there's a the, there's an actual final like special final level of hell that was that was kind of made for the Xbox Live Arcade version. But the thing is, the way that it, it's so satisfying, even just finding that one that unlike in other games where, I, you know, everything in the game is kind of more apparent that I, I usually feel like, OK, I need to see everything. And this one, that was so satisfying. It's like, I don't even have to see everything else. Right. It's fine. Like, I got I got more pleasure from this one thing than I, <laughs> than I do in, you know, most other games combined with all the secrets combined. Yeah. For me, it was so, on so many occasions the sheer delight of seeing these systems collide in a way that I hadn't anticipated. It's, it's that weird combination of, you know, there are these, <laughs> it's a small thing, but like, there are these hidden things in the ground in in the an ice level that will bounce you up in the air and will bounce like whatever is on them up in the air, whether that's money, treasure, enemies, a bomb, literally anything, mm-hmm. um, your dog. Uh, and I was navigating through, jumped down, hit one of these things at the same time that um, this big woolly mammoth thing that shoots like freeze rays hit me. And so I got turned into an ice block as the ice block was being bounced up in the air. And then when it 
hit the ground, it shattered and I was dead, even though I had full hearts and had been doing a great run. Delighted. <laughs> you know, Just the, delighted. And the thing is, if if somebody's listening to this who has not played this game, like, wait, you were just, weren't you, aren't you in caves? Why is there a woolly mammoth with a laser that <laughs> oh, freezes you? Oh, there's lots of stuff. You know, and that's this game. It's yeah. just full of surprises. But just to help orient everyone, maybe we should go over just what the basic structure of this of this game is. Sure. So you have uh, different zones with like di- that you'll do like three or four levels within each zone. Um, so the first zone is called the mines. It looks very much like a populated uh, place that is being mined. Um, And then under that, if you get through those, you'll get to the jungle, which is very lush, full of vegetation, different enemies. Past that, you'll have a zone that is like the ice world. Um, Below that, there's the temple, which has all kinds of ancient Egyptian-y stuff and lots of, you know, old influences. And that's basically, that's, you know, the, on the surface, that's the game. Yeah. If you're not counting all these other secret zones, it's... The goal, at least as you think about it, as you think of it when you're first playing through, is to get from the the mines to the temple, defeat the boss at this giant golden head Olmec, who plays like um, Bowser from Super Mario Brothers three. Very much so, yeah. Uh, where you're just kind of like he's just dropping and you know creating increasingly creating this hole in the ground, and you just need to keep avoiding him until he just makes a big enough hole that he falls through and dies. Yep. And yeah, for most players, that's kind of the game. And if they get there. Again, the PlayStation tells me that only 7.8% of people even see the temple. Right. So, you know, to even get there, I think, is an accomplishment for most players. If you get there and beat Olmec, you have done, you've really done something. Mm -hmm. Like, that's, there's no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts there. That's like, you played this game a lot if you were able to do that. But then there's so much, there's so much more for other, there's so many hidden places, including, as Michelle mentioned, this hell scenario. Yeah. Which includes the real final boss, which is a place I'll never see because it involves, getting there involves going through this chain Basically starting, so you have to make it through all in one go. You can't use shortcuts, which we'll get to. Yeah. There are shortcuts. There are like slight markers of progression here, but you have to make it all in one go and get these Egyptian artifacts along the way, which in and of itself is incredibly difficult. Hidden in different places, hard battles with enemies. Then you have to go to, then you get to hell and then you have to work through that and then beat this final. I'm just not going to do it. But for some people, that's, uh, that's what they live for. Not me. It would take me so long to get good enough at this game. I just to be love able knowing to, that like, that's possible. Right. That's I out love, there for someone. I else. love watching other people do it. Yeah. Not going to do it. This game is incredibly fun to watch. It's yeah. fun to watch people who are good at this game be good at this game. Mm. And it's fun to watch schmoes that you're sharing a couch you're with. You're talking about me. I am myself. <laughs> It's really fun to watch people struggle their way through this thing. Yeah. And I think this goes back to what you mentioned before. It's It does all come down to the interaction between all these systems, the fact that everything acts like anything else and anything can be affected by anything else. So I think the experience you got from Spelunky with the emergent gameplay is what I was hoping you would get from Grand Theft Auto. Yes, absolutely. And that you didn't quite get. Yes, absolutely. This like very chaotic, like a little bit of like, I should have seen that coming, but didn't. A real sort of like hanging out and playing this game, like Lots of laughter, lots of fun. And where you're building your own little stories every time. Absolutely. This thing is like an anecdote generator. And it, and again, like it's so brilliant because it works with the aesthetic because, yeah, you're an adventurer. And every time you, you have an adventure story to tell every time you get through 
you know, whether you succeed or die, yeah, and you have like an, a, a fun, a fun adventure anecdote that that is ready made for you. That's like full of surprises when if you recount it to somebody. Yeah, and I truly love that that is punctuated by the game giving you this like you died screen that includes like a description and graphic of how you died. And there is an incredible number of these. Like the fact that they bothered to program so many of these is mm-hmm. beautiful to me. Like for that one where I got bonked in the head, they had brain damage, not mm-hmm. just you died. You know, when I got frozen and then shattered, they have you got shattered. Like there's there's like a loving attention to the particularity of the ways that you can die in this game that I think is really <laughs> great. One of my favorite deaths for this is one where um, I died to one of these like Yeti things in in the ice world that their whole thing is if if you run into them, they'll just throw you super, super hard. And I happened to get in this loop where this Yeti threw me. I bounced off like two different blocks and then the Yeti just kept throwing me like my corpse was just in this like deadlocked in this thing where it just kept getting passed back to the Yeti to rethrow. <laughs> and so even when it went to the you died screen, it still had this like video of my corpse still just being thrown over and over again, bouncing around this space with this Yeti. That's so fun. Yeah. That's so fun. Yeah. There's so many stories. I think the one that stands out to me because it happened early on is that I wanted to get a shotgun. Because just doing some research, I heard okay, like shotguns are one of the best weapons in the game. You know who's got a? You know who's got? You know who I always do, has a yes. shotgun? The shopkeeper. <laughs> so this guy is the shopkeeper, um, and you know you can go and if you can, you know he can treat you well if you if you pay the price. But if you try to pull a link in Link's Awakening and try to <laughs> steal his shit, or threaten him, or if you threaten him, him anyway, or if uh uh. <laughs> An enemy stumbles in and, you know, and sets him off. Somehow it's your fault and Harms he blames him you. him or his merchandise. Yeah. yeah. Somehow it's your fault and he blames you. But basically, you know, if if you disrupt this guy in any way, he, he goes ballistic and pulls out his shotgun and just starts jumping all over the screen super fast, incredibly difficult um, to to capture, you know, like to you're trying to jump on his head so you can, you know, at least knock him out. But he's incredibly fast. And like he just berserk. So I have a strategy because I want to get a shotgun and I'm not finding it anywhere else. I don't have enough money to buy it. And it's not even in the shop, but I know he's got one. And I know that if I just take him out, it's mine. <laughs> uh, and this way, how the, how the shop generated was that I could kind of, it was kind of in the middle of the level. So I could like drop. So there's like a part that I could access that shared a wall. Mm-hmm. And with just, you know, like two or three bricks between the shopkeeper and where I could be. You're talking about coming in behind him. Yeah. So if I go in behind him and just bomb that wall eventually you know i can bomb the wall in a way where the radius might blast him and right. knock him out this is my plan try to secretly bomb the shopkeeper so i gotta do that it doesn't work it just pisses him off <laughs> so he goes bananas and starts running through the level trying to find me oh yeah he will leave the shop <laughs> yeah he left the shop and just the way this level was laid out it was quite open so he was just bouncing around and like coming towards me while he's doing this, though, I drop below him, circle back around the other way so I can sneak into his shop and steal all his shit. <laughs> and some of the things that I buy is this paste that you can get, like this glue. Yeah. And anyway, so I'm like, I got his stuff. I didn't get the shotgun because he still has it and he's going bananas all over the level. But at least I got this other stuff. Let me go out. I go out. He is just camping out by the exit door, <laughs> jumping around, shooting, shooting, shooting. I don't know what to do. I also, at this point, don't know what the paste does. Right. What the pace does is it makes 
any bomb you shoot sticky. So it just sticks to whatever surface you throw it on, which is actually really useful. But I don't know what it does, but I'm like, okay, I've got a few bombs left. The best case scenario I have is maybe I can try to like lob them and, you know, blow just them blow them up or, or distract something. I lob one, get stuck right on his head. <laughs> Blows him up. I go, grab his shotgun, finish the level. Died like 30 seconds later, but it was still That's a cool story. But it was still like a <laughs> it cool was awesome. story. <laughs> yeah, just, just so much fun. So many stories like that that, that emerge that... Again, I, I can't get mad at this game and I can't really get frustrated because I'm having so much fun along the way as, as I'm learning. Yeah. Another thing I remember you talking about at one point is that, um, you know, thinking about some of the some moments when it feels like this game is maybe like a bit unfair. If It's very different than encountering like platform bullshit in a game like mm-hmm. Crash Bandicoot where mm-hmm. like somebody put that there. This like occasionally you'll have really the procedurally generated nature of the levels will just concoct a little part of the level mm-hmm. that is so hard. And sometimes that thing will be like the exit of the level. <laughs> and, and that's it. Like I, I, I become so forgiving just knowing that these are procedurally generated Yeah, because it's not like, Oh, like you handcrafted this bullshit level. You thought this was a good idea. No, it's instead. Okay. Sometimes you get a bad role. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes the level that is produced is not, is not that great. To his credit, though, you know, Derek Yu does have a few rules of level generation that mm-hmm. every that every room has to follow, right? It's not it's not random generation, it's procedural generation, right? right. So that that there is all the all the levels make some sense. For example, you're always going to start at the top and always have to get to the exit that's going to be somewhere at the bottom. Yeah. Right? The, the exit's never going to be in the middle of, of the level on a vertical axis, right? He's also made it so that you can get through every level without having to use any items. So I don't even know if we, I think we've implied this, but everything is destructible in this game. Yeah. And so you have a finite number of bombs and uh, that you start with and you can use them to blow up the walls and get through. And, you know, you can craft some interesting paths there, use it to access treasure. But if you don't have anything, you can get there is at least one route that you can use to get through it, which I think is is really nice for the player. Yeah. You, you know, so it's not a completely hostile environment. You know, Derek, you does show the player some some mercy. And so. <laughs> So in the yeah, so in those moments, you know, where you just where you just kind of have a bad role, you just have a bad role, and and you kind of can accept it as such. And like you'll be dead soon, and you'll try again. You'll start over. You did get mad at some people though. Oh, like the NPCs. Yeah. So there's there's a real unevenness, I would say, of how advantageous some of the items you can buy <laughs> shops are. Oh yeah, I get pissed at the shopkeeper all the time for like not stocking the right things. Sometimes, even though it'll be like. Here's the here's the like clothing vendor and you're like, what? No bombs. Well, like okay, look, clothing. look, if you're if you're in the mines, at the very least, you should always be selling bombs. That's the number one necessity when you're in the mines. But sure. But yeah, there is, you know, like it is what items show up in the shop are, are also completely um, random. So sometimes you'll get a lot of really useful items showing up in the shop on a run. And sometimes you'll get. Incredibly, or at least what I would think were useless items. Like Nerdle? Well, he's not an item. He's a human. You can buy him. So yeah, you can find some kind of shop where you can buy the services of a man. Oh, that's politely put. Until his death. (laughs) And in this case, um, this man was named Nerdle. I think he has many different monikers that he can go by. The but, first time we met him, his name was Nerdle. And that is definitely what he is. Yeah, and and that's all we will refer to him as for the rest of time. 
I paid a good chunk of cash. I'm like, Nerdle, you're on my team now. Let's do this. This guy was dead in five seconds. It literally, you got nowhere near the end of just that specific screen. Like, but he, he went down so fast. But he's also this, you know, this other added chaos element where now you have this other AI character who's ostensibly on your team, but is just kind of unleashed into this world where, again, everything can act on him and he can act on any object. Starting shit with enemies. Making things blow up, setting off traps. So it's basically you, you, you know, you pay a premium for more disaster with Nurgle. <laughs> I should have known by the name that's what I was gonna get. Um, but yeah, there, there's some great things in this game. Like there's, and like I said, like the shotgun is super useful. The jetpack is incredibly useful. Oh yeah. Um, you know, the cape is really useful because it prevents you from um, getting fall damage. But, you know, there there are a lot of items that are less useful. I, I, I still don't really have use for many of the other weapons. I think your standard whip, apart from the shotgun, your whip is maybe the most versatile thing you can have. I completely agree. I stop buying weapons at a certain point. Uh, occasionally the shotgun's fun, but, you know. Yeah, there's a, you know, there's these climbing gloves that allow you to stick to any part of a surface, of a vertical surface, which are useful, but then often... Not useful because you're sticking on things that you don't want to stick on. A blessing and a curse situation yeah. for sure. Yeah. So there's, there's again, it's there's just so much there, and and you're constantly being surprised. And I, you know, it takes so many playthroughs until you've even seen all the all the different items. And I'm sure there's many ways you can combine them that I haven't even thought of. So there, there's a lot there. It's it's a it's just the act of playing through this game and just the going through the levels, even if it's your hundredth time, still full of surprises. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about some of the other elements of this game, um, ways that it might resist, you know, the classic roguelike structure and uh, maybe start digging really into the details of what works and maybe doesn't work about this game. point i think we've been talking about this game with the implication that you know every time you die you do literally have to start back from the first level which is not quite true right this game does include certain elements of progression probably most prominently a shortcut system yeah so how this works is that at the end of every one of these zones you meet this guy called the tunnel man and he'll ask you for some goods so for example the first at the end of the the mines, he'll say, on the first time you see him, he'll say, hey, do you have an extra bomb? You can give him an extra bomb. Nothing happens then. You go on your way. Um, you'll die again and start back from the beginning. And, and then you'll see Tunnel Man again. And he'll say, hey, now do you have a rope? And then the next time you see him, I think in this case, he asks for a bunch of money. Yeah. And then after you kind of satisfy three of his desires, uh, he builds you a shortcut. So now you can just start whenever you want from the jungle in this case. And similarly, at the end of the jungle, you meet Tunnel Man, and by giving him kind of three increasingly difficult-to-get items or objects, he builds you a shortcut to the ice caves. It feels so good to open these up. I mean, this game, we like, we've talked about it being like pretty punishing in a lot of in a lot of cases. You know, by the time you've gotten good enough to be consistently getting to, you know, the next zone and and being able to hand off these resources, 
it just like being able to just start at the next level that you're like excited that you can get to now is so good. So there is this progression built in and and you know it it does give you the sense that you are making progress and it's marking that progress by letting you start from a different place you don't have to start from the mines every time. What do you think about that? Does that kind of undercut the uh the essence of the roguelike or one argument I've heard from people is like, you know, that's that's there. But once you get really good at Spelunky and you really want to make a, a winning run, you should start from the mines because then you can build up your inventory as you go. And by the time you get to the temple, you actually have quite a good loadout uh, that'll help you survive the temple. Whereas the argument is if you just start at the ice caves, you don't have enough time or resources to really build up your inventory. And to those people, I say, I think that's kind of a crock of shit. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. It's because... I would buy that argument if, for example, the last boss, like this Olmec boss, you know, mm-hmm. required was like an actual boss fight that required combat and, and you know, that you really wanted to have a lot of HP built your up. Best gear. And yeah, your best gear. You know, you'd want a jetpack and a shotgun, ideally. Right. You did take him on. But it's not. He's basically, like I said, uh, you're just kind of running away from him while he digs his own grave and he's a one shot kill. So it really doesn't matter. You just really need <laughs> one hit point. And maybe some bombs. If anything, you want to kind of get lucky and I think have some bombs and rope ready when you're in the temple just so you can get to the exits as quickly as possible. Yeah, the temples are hard. Because Yeah, the temple, the enemies of the temple are, are quite hard and they can get, if you if you end up in a room with multiple enemies, you can get swamped really quickly. There's yep. a lot of things in there that can kill you in one shot. Yep. And they can travel through rock and stuff, which is challenging. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, I think if you want to beat the game the Olmec way, you take your ice cave shortcut. You Ideally, hope your temple shortcut by the, by or, the or end. Well, I'll, no, no, I'll get to the temple shortcut because <laughs> this actually turns everything on its head. You take your ice cave shortcut. You hope to build up some bombs on the way and just bomb your way down and, and you go after Almec that way. Right. Um, so I actually think that the way the game is balanced doesn't incentivize you to actually start from the beginning on a full run. But if you want to get the shortcut to the temple you actually do have to start from the beginning because you have to take an item that you can only get in the mines all the way through to the temple. And if you want to access the super secret hell level, you actually have to do everything in in a full run from the mines. That's the only way to do it. So it does build in these other types of challenges for people um, that require them to go through the game start to finish, which is, is how Derek, you kind of intended everybody to go through every run. Uh, but for people who say that that's, you know, the optimal way to go through if you just want to beat the game. No, it's not. This game is not balanced <laughs> for that. I think we're just still at the wrong place on the on the like difficulty learning curve to get there. So a thing that's interesting to me about this shortcut system is I feel like in a lot of games where, you know, progress is hard won and they have, you know, some of these elements, um, you get these sorts of like skips only at the point where the the area that you're skipping is now so trivial as to not be a mm, substantial mm-hmm. threat to you anymore. And so it really just feels like a waste of time. I don't know about you. I did not get to the point where it was impossible for me to just die in the mines. Oh, yeah. And especially the jungle, which I think is the oh, hardest of absolutely. all the sections. Absolutely. So it's interesting to me because this feels like this isn't uh, – time-saving scaffolding for a player that has outgrown those first mm-hmm. levels so much as it is supportive scaffolding for a player who is doing their best to get through this but honestly is probably never going to make it without a, that little bit of a check-in progression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is actually a really reasonable compromise in this game between you know the people who are going to 
be all in on this game and who we're going to want to like get the do that hell run, really mm-hmm. enjoy and lean into the challenge of that. And people who, you know, you're a, you're a, a relatively you're a seasoned accomplished platformer. You're not a speedrunner, but you're like good at these games. Well, so I'll get into this later. This so one of the things that I had to wrap my around, my mind around is that this game is not a platformer. I'll I'll say more. Okay, than okay. But you know, you're you're experienced with this medium. Mm-hmm. Um and it was like do you think that so A, did you ever go from the actual start of the mines to the temple level or to Olmec and B, do you feel like No. You, yeah. Like it would it would take like another 40 hours to get there. Yeah, like over time but but again, you know, 40 hours to get there but like you said, the the um, possibility of dying in the first level is always present. Yeah, it's yeah, ever present. It never. There's no way you. I don't think that you can master it enough to a hundred percent of the time kind of get through uh, without dying. Uh, and in that case, I think it is different than something like Hades, where basically you know, just after a certain point, you can always get through. You know, whatever I can't remember what it was that first world of right. Hades without without dying. Right. Maybe you you know if you're really sloppy. But there are so many things in, in Splunky that can kill you in one shot. So many ways that the systems just interact on top of each other that can just gang up on you. And so and much unpredictability, yeah. like yeah, which um, which I love, especially when you're. I mean, and when you're not a patient person <laughs> like me, it, it can really it can really kick you in the ass. If one is not, patient. <laughs> and you know, this idea of progression is something that Derek you had to deal with when he was trying to build this game for Xbox Live Arcade, and their producer at Microsoft kept saying, you know, if we want people to understand what this is they're they're not gonna they might be turned off by a game where there's no progression we need to add something like a leveling system something you know and, and this is the time when inspired by call of duty everything was kind of getting leveling system like, okay I mean, call of duty gets a lot le- like they adopt a leveling system it's like oh if you can adopt a leveling this. system in first person shooters anything can have a leveling system now and you really didn't want to so we already had the the tunnel man built in so that that's kind of what you want to do and the compromise was that adventurer's journal. So mm. the thing that um, kind of tracks every enemy you see, all your deaths, as you know, just as as, as a little something for the uh, for the player to see that they've they've been they can unlock something as they go, right? Right. And and I'm I'm really glad that he kind of stood firm and didn't you know didn't give into a leveling system here because I for me anyway I think a game like this just makes me rethink how we think about what progress in games and what progression actually means, and that. You know, we don't need to tie it to a leveling up system. And if anything, that maybe distills what's actually happening as in this case, you progress by getting better and learning the game and understanding the systems. And I think for me, my biggest moment of progression that would be more significant than any, you know, leveling up was when I kind of internalized how far I could fall without taking absolutely fall damage. Yes. And the second that kind of clicked with me, I just moved through so much more confidently and quickly through the levels um, and I was able to take more risks and and get them to pay off because I knew I probably wouldn't get get hurt. Yeah, I feel this way about the long jump, like the running jump, mm-hmm. figuring out the getting used to the exact trajectory of that and being able to see exactly how far and onto what kind of block can I make it just to catch myself on the ledge? Because you want that stuff to be really mm-hmm. precise. There is a sort of blockiness to this game where you can see, okay, I can jump two units high and get the clasp the edge of of the sort of second unit. And so, you know, you really do need to have that spatial mapping really strong. Um, but uh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And for me, you know, that's as meaningful as if you gave me, if I unlocked an item in the game that would reduce my fall damage. Right. 
I just did it myself, but it was as meaningful as if I actually unlocked something. Actually, probably more meaningful because it meant that I actually figured something out about how this game works. Yeah. The game didn't give me something to make my experience easier. Yeah. And again, it, you know, it's just a different way of thinking about difficulty and how to manage difficulty that I think is uh, is really useful and can sometimes challenge some of the uh, our normal conceptions about how that stuff works. So, you know, at this point, I think we said a lot of positive things about this game. We said about what we really liked about it, how it, how it hooked us. Um, and I think we have a lot more to say, but I, I'm wondering why then this isn't a game that took that you put 100 hours into when you right. so readily did do that to so many other roguelike games. Yep. I mean, so my first thought is that um, I tend to be a little less hot on platformers compared to some of these other these other sort of hybridized genres that I've been talking about. Um, but I don't I don't think that's just it. I think one of the things that this helped me realize, along with some of our conversations earlier about Mario versus Donkey Kong and all that stuff, is I think I like my platformers to have more visual variety and be more designed and more curated. Um, it's not that I regret any of the time that I spent with Splunky. I had a lot of fun with this game, but I think... I think the thing that I love about the roguelikes that I love is that they become more about understanding the deep systems of the game than any one particular articulation of the systems, right? So the uh, a level in Mario is a a planned like instantiation of how a bunch of those systems work to create challenges. Um and I think I think I like that that you know, beyond the beyond the the joy of discovery and and the laugh the first time you see something combined, I think some other genres have more durable pleasures in exploring how those fit together for me than platformers. I think a lot of what I like from platformers is seeing the the design intentionality in levels in in worlds and how they fit together and all that stuff. Okay, so so yeah, me too, a hundred percent, and this is why I didn't think I would like this game, but. Here's here's the the big revelation that I came to that I mentioned earlier. This game isn't a platformer. Go on. And I I think yes, like a procedurally generated platformer, I don't think it would work. Um if we think about it as a platform in a traditional sense. So this game has platforming elements, mm -hmm. right? You have to jump between things. But I don't think it's a platformer basically because of the destructible environments. Hmm. Because a platformer as you said, you know, the pleasure of a platformer is that you're given this meticulously designed challenge space and then you have to get through it right here though you know the destructible environments when you have the bombs and you can kind of blow through any wall you know you as the player here have some control over where the platforms appear and what the environment actually looks like right uh, and i think this is a hundred percent essential to enjoying this game right you need this element of co-creation so that you you know, you don't just outright curse your bad luck when you roll a bad level. Right, right, that, right. You know, you see the level as a whole and there is this element of strategy where you're like, okay, I have here, you know, seven bombs. I can see my layout. I know there is, you know, there is a path I can go through without having to use any items. It looks incredibly dangerous. So how can I optimize my resources to, you know, plot out a path that gets me to the end the most efficiently? Mm -hmm. That's not a platformer. Yeah, yeah, you know what? That's fair. That element of st uh, strategic thinking and thinking about how you're going to transform your environment is something that is that is not intrinsic to the classic platformer genre. It's also why I think I'm not the best at this game because <laughs> if this was just a platformer, 
I would have beaten this no problem, I think. Yeah. I will say you came much more quickly than I did to understand the merits of sometimes just blowing your way through a level when other avenues look mm-hmm. too hard. Like And and so and, but but here's the thing. So that third the third area, when you get to the ice caves, those levels, the way that those are procedurally generated are much more like what I think a procedurally generated platformer would look like. Because the spaces are so much more open. Mm-hmm. You're actually not doing a lot of bombing in that spaces. It really is just kind of a vertical platformer in, in that case, more than anything else. And that's by far the zone I find the easiest. Hmm. And I think it's because I can just platform my way down in most cases. Sure. Even though there's the the abyss, the pit at the bottom. Right. That's just a bottomless pit. That's That's classic platformer. You know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. You know what I mean? So like that, those levels for me as somebody who plays a lot of platformers felt the most familiar. Hmm. And I can usually get through the, you know, the ice caves pretty easily. Obviously, you know, there's always some randomness, there's always some challenge here, but but by and large, I can get through those the easiest of any of them. And I think it's because I don't have to add that, you know, that strategy, yeah, destructive environment, build your own platforms element to it. Um, but I really like that part of it. But I think you know, and I, it gets sold as a platformer. I always heard it as, you know, a, a roguelike platformer called that. And I think that undersells what it actually is and like what, what you know, faculties and what kind of intelligences it asks of you as a player. That also explains why you find the ice area so much easier than I do. I The, the ice area is like the land of one hit kills for me. <laughs> like anything goes wrong, you're just like off the cliff into the abyss in a way that you're not in other love in other like zones. I unquestionably find mines the easiest. I I might even have had I might be more consistent getting through the jungle area on any oh, wow. given playthrough than the ice area. Like I I do not at all experience this as like way easier. And that completely makes sense based on our two histories mm-hmm. with and, and like the patterns of what we play. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I and I think for me that's what the one of the great pleasures of this game, one of the challenges is, 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 you know, I'm familiar with all the platforming parts, but then it's how do you merge that with all these, with, you know, the more strategic elements right. of working your way through. When you're also, the other part of the platformer that it involves, you know, is, is kind of this timer. So there's this ghost that can appear if you don't get through a level fast enough, who one hit kills you. Yeah. So you're basically on a timer this whole time. It's not a literal timer in the corner. It's, again, like one of these really creative ingenious ways to take what is a pretty standard mechanic you know timer in the corner that doesn't really it doesn't make sense it doesn't have an in-world you know logic or purpose yeah and and but and then add this in-world thing that does the same that has the same function adds a sense of urgency but in this case it's the sweet ghost who you can also use strategically because if he goes if he passes over gems they turn to diamonds and are worth more money yeah and like you if you're good enough you can sort of platform around mm-hmm. the, and still get where you're going. Like it's just an, a, a very intense additive <laughs> a challenge spike at that point. I, I really like the ghost as an addition to this game. Yeah. But, but again, you know, so it has that, the pace of a platformer, the urgency of a platformer, but also this world where anything can kill you and you have to create the world that you're moving through as you go. So it, it involves a lot of kind of quick thinking resource management which is, you know, the resource management stuff especially is not my strong suit. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I th- for me, it was, a, it was a great experience. And that really led up to the, the overall difficulty for me. Yeah. 
But and I think for everybody, you know, for different reasons, this is a this is a hard game. Mm-hmm. But I experienced the difficulty in such a different way than I experienced something like Dark Souls. Okay. Um, I don't know. Did you feel the same thing, or did this feel like playing Dark Souls again, just funnier? Um, I think that I think that the the difficulty in Dark Souls for me was so located in the particularities of each boss. It, mm. It's so intensely, you know, and I was talking about an instantiation of mm-hmm. how systems can work as opposed to the systems themselves, that this feels different in the sense that, you know, I'm I'm never too worried about having to, there's no obstacle in this game that is going to stop me from progressing. Mm-hmm. There's no one thing, there's no one zone area I can get to that just is too hard or too threatening mm-hmm. for me to get past because... I'm going to die. I'm going to reload. I'm going to be back here in five minutes. It's cool. We'll just, we'll retake it again. Um, so I I see some similarity in the process of, of learning and mastering how things work. Like, I think in this game also, you really want like the intelligence in your hands to be able to mm-hmm. really be in control of, of how you're moving. The game's very responsive, feels really good and really tight. Um, but I think... This just feels one one step back and one step removed, um, and and not not in a way that I didn't like. You know, I think again, this is part of the charm of of roguelikes for me to some extent. Yeah, I, and here I agree, and and here is something again that I would never have thought of before I actually started playing these games. When I had these prejudices against roguelikes, I knew they were supposed to be really hard, and again, I thought they would just be frustrating. Here, though, this permadeath—you start from the beginning, regardless. Um, actually gives this game a completely different rhythm than something like Dark Souls. And I, you know how Dark Souls can exhaust you? Yes. I never feel exhausted in this game precisely because no matter what happens to me when I die, I start with a blank slate. Right. In Dark Souls, you have the progression, you have the permanence, and that carries over with your deaths. And so with a death, you know, every time you die in Dark Souls, if you die with your souls, you're you're more stressed out because you need to then make a you need to make a run, a perfect run to get those souls back. Or, you know, you might have wasted a ton of one resource that's annoying to get. You kindled a, f- a fire thing. You have humanity, you know, that you're losing as. Yeah. You, yeah. So, so every time you're playing something like Dark Souls, it's hard, but it, it demands your attention because so much can be lost with every death. Whereas there's no stakes in this game. Yeah. I can like this is a game I can play if I want to focus on a game. It's also a game I can put on if I want to stick a podcast on and just play mindlessly. We had some fun conversations while you were fully playing this game and we were talking about something completely unrelated. And yeah. would just pause to laugh when you died and then pick up. That's it. Like a completely different rhythm to something like Dark Souls. You know, so again, like difficulty doesn't have to be punishing in that way. It doesn't have to be exhausting in that way. And this in, in this case, I think the difficulty is actually... Part of that fun rhythm, because it was just like, you know, just again, doing those loops, yeah. doing one more run because it was so difficult and you just kind of get into a groove and, you know, it can just be kind of that mindless, but but nonetheless, like satisfying. Yeah. Ga- like, you know, chunk of gaming experience, kind of like arcade like game experience. Yeah. And, you know, something I like about this that is different from some of the other roguelikes I've I've played is that even even a relatively long run of it, like I'm thinking about some of my other experiences and, you know. A Slay the Spire run or a um, uh, an Into the Breach run can be an hour, it can be 90 minutes, it can be two hours. And so at that point, if you get a really bad mm-hmm. bounce 
and you're an hour and 45 minutes in, you know, you're going to start with a blank slate and it's all going to be fine. But you're also like, Ugh. you sunk all that time. You sunk all that yeah. time. Whereas this. And Derek, you talks about this, that he really wanted to make this an arcade like experience, you right. know, that arcade games are meant to be played in one sitting. Um, and, you know, but we're pretty challenging because they need you to feed the quarters. And and that's kind of what he brought to, you know, a non-arcade setting to, a, in this case, a console setting or to a PC setting, where it's these quick bursts of gameplay that that are skill-based, meant to be played in one setting, but, you know, don't demand that much of your time, aren't that punishing. You know, that the point of it is to not frustrate you, but to encourage you to want to, you know, and, you know, metaphorically reinsert another quarter. Right, right. And I, I, I think it it does that beautifully. Yep, I completely agree. It's a good game. It's this is such a good game. I completely understand why, you know, this helps repopularize this genre. It it brings so much of what I love about where this genre goes like into focus in this in this early form. Um and I'm I'm so glad to have spent time with it, honestly. Also, I'm rooting for Derek Yu. We watched these documentaries. What a likable guy. Yeah, he's uh, he's yeah, incredibly like, I mean, I think, you know, thoughtful, like, I think all of these indie developers are incredibly thoughtful. Yeah. You know, and, and really smart. But yeah, he he's charming in a different, in a, in a kind of a different way. <laughs> we try not to take those things into consideration, but sometimes you spend enough time with a guy. I mean, well, that's, we've talked about this before, right? Like, when you're dealing with indie games, especially ones that are, you know, a small team or one creator, you do become invested in the story of the person who made it. And they... They become part of that story, whether they kind of want to be or not. They yeah. become this public figure, um, which which is hard for for a lot of people. And I'm sure it was hard for Derek Yu. He's just incredibly charming on camera. Yeah. <laughs> which is always a benefit. The, the secret other thing you need to be good at to be a successful <laughs> indie developer. It, increasingly, yeah. Yeah. Since, uh, since Tim Schafer. <laughs> That's like the blueprint. <laughs> Okay, so before we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah. Um, so the first thing is that I don't know if this is specific to the version we played or not, which is the PS4, but I have mixed feelings about the damsel's help coming from the controller. So it's like kind of neat, but also I found the the actual Yelp or help noise like super annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like a time or two and we were like put the controller down and like walk away for a second and you would just hear like help help like coming out of the yeah so i this is in the like a good in theory but like in practice I, i'm a little lukewarm on, <laughs> on this one <laughs> okay anything else yeah, one other thing. Okay. I feel like I got a glimpse with this game of what it must be like for you to watch me process new games. Like, I don't know if we've played a game before on the show where you also have played it in depth and haven't played it before. It, there were so many funny, small moments, and it was really fun. And I, like, found myself doing the thing that I know you sometimes do where I'm, like, writing down you talking to your what you're saying when you're talking to yourself through So what, what did I do? <laughs> well, one of yours was just, like... You were like dealing with all these all these spider things. You're like, oh my god, look at all these one hit kill things. And like two seconds later, so smugly, you're like, got past him. <laughs> <laughs> Completely to yourself. I was like behind you on the computer, like so like unself awarely. Um, and I just feel like I got like a small joy of like what it would have been like to watch me go through a lot of this. And I appreciated that. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? 
No, I think that's going to be it for us today. Uh, so thank you everyone for listening. And as always, if you enjoyed it, we really appreciate if you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening on. It helps a lot. Uh, more information about the show is available at neverwasagamer.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. Yeah, thanks so much for listening to this. I, I feel kind of unstructured, chaotic episode. We we're bouncing around. It's procedurally so, generated episode. Yeah, kind of. So, you know... If you have not played Spelunky, we encourage you to. And hopefully we gave you some of that experience <laughs> in this <laughs> through how listening. How long did you make it into this podcast? <laughs> but yeah, I don't know how you could talk about this game in you know a very structured, coherent way because that's just not what the essence of this game is. It's just full of twists and turns and surprises and go play it. Absolutely. It's, it's a great game. So we're done our indie arc. We have another arc coming up, but in between we're going to do another one of our Snap Judgment grab bags. Mm-hmm. So it is... As we're recording this E3 season, when this goes up, E3 season will be long gone, sadly. We love E3. Yeah. But at that point, you know, I think all the takes will have been taken about E3 2021. So instead, we're going to do a blast to the past. We're going to go back in time, baby, to 1999 and look at the games of E3 1999. Michelle's going to take a trip to the show floor. Yep. Get a sense of the report back. Get a sense of the new trends. Look at some, look for some, uh, you know, hidden gems in the corner. Play some of the big releases. See, see what's there, and uh, and report back next time. Look out, Dave Halverson. So we'll see you next time to talk about E3 1999, because having one of the highlights of your year be the three day stretch where you get to watch a lot of commercials <laughs> is an essential part of being a gamer.